over the next six weeks or so I have opportunity to return to our series in 1 Kings. In fact, we're almost at the end of 1 Kings. I ask you to turn with me this evening to 1 Kings and chapter 21, which is on page 326. I'm going to read the entire chapter to you in one chunk, simply because we need to see it in that way and then to bring out some key lessons from this passage. It is what will be to some of you a very familiar story. It's a story about Ahab and how he had Ahab had Naboth eventually killed and took possession of his vineyard. It came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near, next to my house. And for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its worth in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give the inheritance of my fathers to you. So Ahab went into his house, sullen and displeased, because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel his wife came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? He said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. Then Jezebel his wife said to him, You now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, a Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters to the elders and nobles that were dwelling in the city with Naboth. She wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast, and seek Naboth with high honour among the people, and seek two men, scoundrels, before him to bear witness against him, saying, You have blasphemed God and the king. And take him out and stone him that he may die. So the men of his city, the elders and nobles who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast, and seated Naboth with high honour among the people. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him, and the scoundrels witnessed against him, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. They took him outside the city and stoned him with stones so that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. So it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, 
that Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is, in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity, and I will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel his wife stirred him up. He behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So it was, when Ahab heard these words, those words, that he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his body and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that this portion of scripture, together with all scripture, is part of your infallible word. The Spirit of God led a holy man to write these things down for our learning. And Lord, we pray that that same Spirit will be our teacher this night, the Spirit of truth, and lead us into the truth, the truth concerning ourselves, the truth concerning God himself. Lord, speak to us from your word. Impress the truth and the greatness of your righteousness and glory and justice upon us, as well as your grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Ahab hated Elijah. He regarded him as his enemy. He referred to him as the troubler of Israel. Ever since Elijah first appeared suddenly on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17, 
and said, As the Lord God of Elijah, uh, sorry, the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain during these years except at my word. After the humiliation of Baal on Mount Carmel, Elijah seems to have disappeared off the scene. You remember Jezebel's threats because he had killed all her prophets of Baal. And you remember her threats. She wanted him exterminated. Well, perhaps Ahab thought he had seen the last of Elijah. Imagine his shock and his horror. On the day when he was proudly surveying his most recently acquired piece of real estate, the vineyard of Naboth there in Jezreel, next to his palace, he had come perhaps with his royal landscape gardener in order to talk about how to turn this latest acquisition of vineyard into a vegetable garden. And into that garden comes Elijah. And the voice of God thunders in condemnation and in judgment. Thus says the Lord, have you murdered a man? And have you seized his property? Thus says the Lord in the place where dogs licked the blood of Naboth. Dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. That must have shaken him. Shaken him to the very core of his being. God has searched out Ahab. God has found him. Not that he did not know where he was. He knew exactly where he was, but he pursued him. It was Ahab who had wandered away and pretended that God and Elijah were no more. But God will not give the wicked any peace, and he will not give Ahab any peace. He pursues him, and pursues him, and confronts him in the very vineyard of Naboth, and exposes his sin and passes judgment upon Ahab and his house. Chapter 21 is about God's judgment on the wicked house of Ahab. This man who outsinned all his predecessors. He was the worst king. He was only the eighth king of the twenty of the nation of Israel. But he was the worst. Far worse than Jeroboam. Far worse than Baasha. And of the twenty kings who sat upon the throne, he was undoubtedly one of the worst. And the burden of Elijah's words to him, God will judge you, King Ahab. God will judge the wicked. That is the message of this chapter. God will judge the wicked. And what we have here is a forerunner, a foretaste of the day of final judgment. When God will judge the nations of this world and all men and women who form the nations of this world. 
And I want to draw out from this passage of Scripture, from this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 21, two things. Firstly, what do we learn about God's judgments on the wicked? What do we learn about the ways in which God judges the wicked? And there are four things that I want us to consider. First of all, God's judgment of the wicked is definite. That is, it is certain. There is no escaping. In Ahab's case, it has come. The day of accountability has come for Ahab. And there is God's servant Elijah standing before Ahab, bringing God's judgment upon him. The first 16 verses in this chapter, though, God does not figure at all in the narrative. He's nowhere to be found. Ahab had gone to Naboth, effectively said to him, Name your price. Give me your vineyard, and I'll give you a good price for it. Naboth had refused. Why? Because Naboth was a principled man. According to the laws of Moses, both in Leviticus and also in Numbers, you will find verses such as that in Leviticus 25 and verse 23, that underline that the land was God's gift to the nation of Israel, and it had been apportioned out, lot by lot, family by family, Remember how Joshua portioned out the land after they'd gone in and possessed the land. And the land was not to be sold to anybody, including the king. It could be hired out on a temporary basis and then it had to be redeemed. But it could not be transferred from one family to another. It was God's gift and Naboth therefore refused to sell it. And he says very strongly in verse 3, God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. You may be the king, but I am not going to give you what is not yours for me to give. It belongs to the Lord. And what did Ahab do? He goes back to his house, and he sulks like a spoilt brat. But Jezebel effectively comes along and says, What's wrong with you, Ahab? Why are you face to the wall? Why are you not eating? Why haven't you joined me at the table today? You're the king around here, aren't you? Well, sure you are. This is how we do things in Phoenicia. This is how my father would have done things. I'll show you how to get this vineyard from Naboth. I'll show you how we do it. And what does she do? She calls a fast. She writes this letter and she calls a fast. There in Jezreel. She covers the wicked deed with religion. She knows how to wheedle her way in to the nobles and to the elders and make it sound plausible. Call a fast. And then she says, call Two men to bear witness. And that's part of the law of Israel too. In the mouth of two or three witnesses. She's prepared to do that. So she says, now you get these men and you get them to say that Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. And of course the punishment for blasphemy, 
stoning. She knows that. That's part of the law of Moses too. So she cloaks the whole thing in religion. But her whole intent is to kill Naboth. And Naboth is killed. Cold-blooded. Rough justice. And she says to her husband, verse 15, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but dead. And in those first 16 verses, you hear not a word about God. But then in verse 17, how different the situation is. She has said to her husband, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And what does the word of the Lord say to Elijah? Elijah, you arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is, in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. And then he tells him what to say. Thus says the Lord. This is divine revelation. This is divine confrontation. It is certain. It is definite judgment. Do Ahab, does Jezebel, do these bully boys, these scoundrels who told lies, do they escape the scrutiny and the assessment of the God of heaven? Not for one moment, even though he apparently is not in the picture in these first 16 verses. He's not in the picture as far as Ahab is concerned. He's not in the picture as far as Jezebel is concerned. He's not in the picture as far as these scoundrels are concerned, or the elders and the nobles who are inhabitants of the city of Jezreel. But he sees, and he determines what will happen in the light of what he sees. He sees these people performing wickedness. And it is the mark of the ungodly that they say God does not see. But it is the mark of God himself. It is the character of God he does see. He sees everything. God is not like the God Baal. He's not like the Asherah. He has eyes and he sees and he has a mouth and he speaks. He's not some blind, dumb idol. He is the living God who dwells in the highest heavens. And we teach our children in the boys and girls catechism that God always sees me and God always sees wickedness as well as righteousness. But he sees everything that is going on there in Samaria. He sees everything that is written down in that letter of Jezebel. He sees into the heart of those who are hired for a fee to bring a false accusation against righteous Naboth. Sometimes in government circles, secrets leak there's a mole somewhere who's let out what is not meant to be public information. Well, God didn't need any leaks. He didn't need any moles. He knew exactly what was going on there in Samaria. He saw it all. 
Elijah didn't. God had to tell him. And God said, now you go and tell this Ahab what I have to say to him. God tracks him down. Naboth may be dead, but in the mind and the heart and purpose of God, Naboth has not been forgotten. God remembers, because God saw, and God acts, and God will act. The judgment of God is definite. It is certain. In the face of wickedness, judgment must and will come. It is inevitable. That is why you have that sustained emphasis in verses 20, 21 and 22. I have found you. I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam and the house of Baasha. This is God's word. Thus says the Lord. And Ahab must listen. And the wicked must listen to what God will say. There is no sheltering from, from the storm for this man Ahab and for his wife Jezebel. The clouds are gathering even as he draws himself into his latest acquisition. Because in a few moments he is going to be confronted with Elijah and the word of the Lord. So the first thing we see about the judgment of the wicked is that it is definite, it is certain. The second thing we see is it is devastating. Utterly devastating. We are inclined to take the threatenings of God lightly. Because of our sinful disposition, we are inclined to think that God somehow will soften the blow. Those who say God does not see, they do not believe in the living and true God. And they do not believe that there is a God who will bring justice in this world and who will bring judgment upon the wicked for violence and oppression and bloodshed. But look at what Elijah said to Ahab and blow away these light views of God's judgment. It is totally and utterly devastating. Look in verse 19. Thus says the Lord, have you murdered and also taken possession? He strikes immediately right at his conscience. What are you doing here, Ahab? Why are you here in this particular vineyard? I know why you're here, God says. You're a murderer. You've seized this possession. And then God says in the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. Ahab, you're going to die for your sin. That's what God says to him. You are going to die for your sin. That is what the Lord God said to Adam and Eve in the day that you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You will die. They didn't believe him. Or at least they were sucked into the argument of the devil, the serpent. But God says, first of all Ahab, you are going to die. Because of your sin. And dogs will lick your blood up in the very place 
where the man you murdered, where his blood was licked up. That is a calamity. There's a day of trouble, there's a day of grief, there's a day of distress that is coming for Ahab. The tenure of Israel's king is over. And God says, you're going to die. And you will die because of your sin. But that is only the beginning of this devastating blow. It is not just Ahab, but we read now in verse 21, I will bring calamity, I will bring this devastation on you, and I will take away your posterity, and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free, and I will make you a house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. All his posterity, all his house, the entire royal household, all his sons, the pride and strength of his life and his vitality, the removal of the royal household, like Jeroboam's house, gone! Basha, gone! Ahab, you'll be gone! We read later on that he had 70 sons. 70 sons. And were all removed. The whole household was destroyed. And then in verse 23, the devastation continues. Not surprisingly, Jezebel is singled out. Elijah says, and concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. What a horrible end. Some of you may remember the horrible end that she had. It's recorded later on in 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10. How she was thrown out from the balcony and was killed when she hit the ground. And when they came back to bury her, couldn't find her. She'd been eaten by the wild dogs. She was not buried. She was carrying for the wild dogs. And God says, the dog shall eat, verse 24, who belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. They will not have the honour of a burial eaten by wild beasts and the birds of the air. These are not empty words. These are words that came true in every single detail. If you were to turn over a few pages and I was to read to you the entirety of two long chapters, 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10, you'll see there how Jehu, who is appointed by God to carry out this judgment, you'll see how these words are fulfilled. And it says on a number of occasions, just as Elijah had said, just as Elijah had said, in other words, just as God had said, God's word is certain. His judgment is certain. And it is devastating. He is going to wipe out in judgment as a punishment the whole house of Ahab. You see, God will not be mocked. You remember some mocked many years later in Athens when Paul stood up before the learned men and the philosophers of Athens and said that God had appointed a day 
in which he would judge the world in righteousness by the man he had ordained. And he said he's given us assurance of this. And he's given it to all men by raising him from the dead. Acts 17 verse 31. And what did they do? They laughed at him. They mocked at him. You cannot be serious, they said. And that is what people say about this kind of thing. That's what people say about God's judgment. That's what people say about wickedness. They have no idea of their wickedness. Ahab did not seem to realise. Jezebel seemed insensitive. The nobles and the men of Jezreel, and particularly these two other men who were hired to bear false witness, they seemed to have no idea of the seriousness of what they were doing. But it makes no difference. The devastating judgment of God will come upon Ahab and upon his posterity and upon his wicked wife Jezebel. God will not be mocked. You say, isn't that severe? Isn't this the God of the Old Testament? No one really deserves to be dealt with like that. Yeah, you can see that Ahab... He went over the top. And Jezebel, well, certainly. But, but, but surely there is mercy with God. But the Old Testament God is the same as the New Testament God. And he is a God of wrath and anger and will judge men and women. The Jesus Christ who was nailed to the cross is the one who is appointed as the judge and he will display his wrath the Bible talks about the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb men and women who will want to hide themselves from the wrath of God and the Lamb will call upon the hills and the mountains to cover them and conceal them from this wrath but Ahab is no exception the judgment of God against the wicked is definite and it is devastating And this man is hit with a bolt of lightning of reality as he realises that Elijah means what he says. Think as he begins to take on board what Elijah is saying. He's heard this man before. He's seen what he's done before. Everything that he has said has come true. He casts his mind back, flashes back in his mind to the time when Elijah stood up and said, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. And I speak as a prophet of God. And he has to say to himself, yeah, it was exactly what he said. And he remembers the fire that came down on Mount Carmel. Remembers the folly of the Baal prophets as they called upon God and flailed their own flesh all day and then he remembers how Elijah said the God who is the true God the fire will come down and consume the altar and its offerings he has to say yeah it came true then didn't it it's the same Elijah it's the same God who is confronting him it's definite it's devastating The third thing that I believe this passage of Scripture tells us is that God's judgment against wickedness 
and against Ahab's wickedness in particular is deserved God is righteous God is just God is fair the Bible tells us in a number of different ways and again and again that God will render to every man according to his deeds that is Old Testament teaching that is New Testament teaching Turn to Romans chapter 2 and verse 6 and you will find there the Apostle Paul is quoting the Old Testament, one of the Psalms. God will render to everyone according to their deeds individual responsibility. He's going to call Ahab to account. He's going to call Jezebel to account in particular. Look again, reflect in verses 1 to 16. How much breaking of God's holy law, the Ten Commandments, is there in those 16 verses? Here is Ahab, a man who is a thoroughgoing idolater. So he's broken the first and the second commandments. He's quite used to taking God's name in vain. He'll use God's name. He'll blaspheme God's name. And then you find Not only is he an idolater, but he is covetous. He wants Naboth's vineyard. It's not his to ask for. But he set his mind on it. He set his heart on it. Here it is, next to the palace. There in Jezreel. I'll have it. Yet God's word says, no, you can't. But it doesn't matter to him. He he set his heart on it. So he's broken the tenth commandment. And to break the tenth commandment, Paul says, covetousness is what? Idolatry. He's come a complete circle. And he steals the land of Naboth. He breaks the eighth command. And he stands by while Jezebel executes her wicked plan. This is the king who was supposed to write out a copy of the law in a book and to learn to fear the Lord his God. Careful to observe all the words of the law that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, nor that he will turn aside to the right or to the left. And God says in Deuteronomy 17, 18 to 20, the man who does that will prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. And that is the very thing that is now going to be denied Ahab. Why? Because he is blatantly disobeyed the law of God. Does he not deserve then judgment? Do you think God is unfair? Has God kept his word? Has Ahab broken God's word? Has Ahab despised God's word? What about Jezebel? An idolatrous even worse than Ahab's idolatry. And what does she indulge in? Cold-blooded, premeditated murder. Oppression. Violence. The breaking of that commandment that says you shall not commit murder. And she employs her own bully boys who bear false witness. The breaking of the ninth commandment. Wickedness abounds in the royal household. Here in the household, there is no fear of God. And it seems in Jezreel that no one had the guts to stand up against her. 
and to say we're not going to be part and parcel of this wicked plot. Is Elijah then? Is God overstating the case when he says to Elijah in verse 19, go and say to him, thus says the Lord, have you murdered a man? Have you taken possession of someone's property that is contrary to my law? Have you broken my laws and my commandments? That's what God is saying to him. And again in verse 20, when Elijah says, yes, I found you because you've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what you are guilty of. That's why God is going to punish you. That's why God's judgment is certain. That's why it's going to be so devastating. You've sold yourself. You've not just done evil. You've given yourself over to evil and to sin. And again in verse 22, God says, You provoked me with your sin. You provoke me to anger. You've made Israel sin. You've made Samaria a city of Baal worship. You had a whole building program for Baal. And you turned the nation away from serving me. These are my people. These are the people I redeemed out of Egypt. They belong to me. The land belongs to me. They belong to me. What have you done, Ahab? You feel some measure of indignation? This is God's indignation. This is God's anger. It is deserved. You provoke me to anger. And then you have the summary statement in verses 25 and 26. These are not the words of Elijah, but they are the words of the man inspired of God to write these things. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Two decades of a man who sold himself to do evil. That's how long he reigned. Two decades. Twenty years. A generation of wickedness. You see, God does not stand by God does not shrug his shoulders and say he's not really interested, he's not a helpless spectator. He takes note. He acts righteously. And there is nowhere for Ahab to hide. God seeks him out. There is nowhere for this sinful man to escape the wrath and the anger and the certain devastating and deserved judgment of God for his wickedness. When God comes, he roars like a lion. It's a threat. It's a threat to life and very existence. And it's a real threat. Because God says he will carry it out. Do you realize that God sees you? His eyes see you. He sees your motives. He sees your thoughts. He hears your words. He sees your deeds. He hears the things and sees the things that you do in secret. There may be someone sitting here this evening who thinks God is not like that. 
They think that Jesus Christ is not like that. But the Bible tells us that Jesus Christ, you don't need to tell Jesus Christ anything. He knows what's in the heart of a man. You can't conceal anything from Christ. Supposing God came tonight and called you and called me to account for our sins, your sins, my sins. What could you possibly plead? What could you possibly say in defence? Have you broken the commandments of God? Have you broken all of the commandments of God? Have you broken them again and again and again? What could you possibly plead? We're condemned if that were the case. But there's a fourth thing about God's judgment of the wicked. That's the most amazing part of chapter 21. In verses 27 to 29, you see that God is willing, in this instance, to delay his judgment, to defer his judgment. When Ahab heard these certain words of judgment, when he heard the, how devastating it was going to be, when he realized, was made to realize in his heart and conscience that this is what he deserved, he was crushed. And for the first time, he began to take Elijah and God's threats seriously. He tore his clothes. Verse 27, put sackcloth on his body, fasted, and lay in sackcloth and went about mourning. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this real repentance? No, it's not real repentance, because we will see his subsequent behaviour proves that he did not truly and fully repent. But does God dismiss Ahab as a total and complete sham? Or is God taken in now by Ahab? Does he think this is true repentance? Well, that's not possible, is it? You see, God even points it out to Elijah, verse 29. See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Elijah, do you see? Do you see what this man has done? For the first time in his life, he's quaking in his boots. He's actually heard what I've been saying to him. And he's done something about it. He's torn his clothes and put sackcloth on. There's some remorse. There's some evidence of shame. There's some awareness of his sin. He's humbled himself before me. And God says, I will not bring the calamity while he's alive. I'll delay it until after his death. Now why did God delay? There's only one answer you can give to that. It's the mercy of God. It's sheer mercy. It's sheer grace. Ahab responds with a measure of sorrow and shame and remorse. It is not lasting repentance as chapter 22 shows, but God sees, and God is patient, and God is gracious, and God is merciful. He who saw all the wickedness of Ahab, 
all the wickedness of Jezebel, also sees this change of heart, this temporary change of heart. This man is beginning to show signs of perhaps he will be repentant. And he acts in mercy. And even at this late hour, he says, I'll defer, I'll delay the judgment. No one could possibly turn around and say, God is unfair. In the face of mercy. Ahab has one last opportunity given to him by the mercy and grace of God. He is meant to take heed and to take heed in such a way that God would lead him to repentance. You may remember a later king of Judah, Manasseh, who for 50 years committed such wicked things and was taken off like an animal to Babylon. And there in Babylon he was brought to repentance and God restored him. He would do it the same with Ahab. But Ahab doesn't remain in that spirit for very long. But what we are left with here is an amazing picture of the mercy of God. He's shown mercy before to this man. He delivered him twice from the Syrians. He didn't deserve it. But how much mercy is God willing to display? Here, here's a situation that is crying out for immediate judgment. And a flicker of sorrow and remorse. And God says, I'll delay it. I'll delay it. How great is God in his mercy. How great is God in his judgments. Now don't think for one minute that what Ahab did in any way earned the favour of God. But it does tell us that God is not willing that anyone should perish. But that they will turn from their sin. But if they do not turn from their sin they will perish. And Ahab did perish. And so did his posterity. And so did his wife. Jezebel, exactly as Elijah said it would happen. But God still holds out a hand and says, Ahab, this is my mercy. This is my kindness. I hope you're not sitting here thinking smugly to yourself well I'm not like Ahab well you may not have committed the same sins as Ahab committed you may not have committed the same sins that Jezebel committed but what does every sin deserve the wrath and the judgment of God every sin every sin all your sins, all my sins, they deserve the wrath and the judgment of God. And before you cast aspersions on Ahab and say, well, that was such a shallow repentance, wasn't it? A little sorrow, a little remorse, but not genuine. 
Has your repentance always been sincere? Always been wholehearted? Always been total and complete? You have to shake your head, don't you? But what we are confronted with here is the mercy of God. His judgment is definite, it is devastating, it is deserved, and yet he's willing to defer, he's willing to delay. Now that will not be true in the final judgment on the last day. But until that day, God is still deferring judgment. He's still delaying. He has not visited any single one of you or me. Any of us. He has not visited us for our sins in a way that we deserve to be visited in judgment. Now I've explained to you some of the things that we learn about the judgment of the wicked in this world, but I want to secondly and much more briefly say what do we learn now about being a Christian being a saint of God in this wicked world the first thing that we learn is this we are left to wonder at God's mercy and God's grace that there are any Christians at all in this world If you are sitting here this evening as one who has believed in Jesus Christ, that is one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable thing on the face of this earth. Who is it? And how is it that a sinner like you, like me, is kept out of hell? It's only the mercy and the grace of God. What if God in his holiness and justice held us all accountable for our sins and judged us now? We'll be cast into hell. What if God in his mercy had never sent Jesus Christ into this world? What are we by nature? We are children of wrath. We fulfill the desires of our flesh and of our own minds. We were alienated. We were enemies in our minds against God by our wicked works. And if God had left us there, that is where we would have, that is how we would remain and we'd have gone to hell with all that justly deserved because of our sin. Why are we then the saints of God? How do we become Christians? Who made us to differ? You think that you are better than anybody else? That is a foolish thought. Do not kid yourself that you deserve something better than Ahab and Jezebel. But God is rich in mercy. And it's his great love wherewith he has loved us and sent his son Jesus Christ and proclaimed peace and has given us his righteousness and has given us his spirit and has forgiven us and has adopted us into his family and made us children of God, sons of God, given us honour and glory when what we deserve is wrath and judgment. Isn't that amazing? It is amazing that there is anyone in this world who has been forgiven, pardoned. It's mercy. 
It's grace. And we have to stand in awe and wonder when we see a passage like this that deals with the judgment of God against the wicked. We realise that that judgment does not fall upon us. But for the sake of Christ we have been pardoned and forgiven and accepted. The second thing we learn is this. Sometimes, indeed often, Christians will suffer injustice in this world. And in suffering injustice in this world, while you live in this world, those wrongs will never be righted. Naboth, as far as I can discern, was a principled and a godly man. But he never received justice. But then, neither did the Lord Jesus Christ, did he? Was he not condemned by false witnesses? Was he not falsely accused of blasphemy? Just like Naboth? And was he not condemned unjustly? Did they not with wicked hands put Jesus Christ to death? The writer of the Hebrews says, in Hebrews 10, verse 34, you've lost your goods, you've lost your possessions. You've been plundered. People have come and just stripped you of everything you've got. Well, in Naboth's day, Jezebel and Ahab, her husband, just rode roughshod. Ungodliness was on the throne. He did not receive justice. And I believe he was a godly man. He was a righteous man. He was a principled man. But he did not receive justice. Now, in our day and age, in this country, we've grown accustomed to freedom. We've gone across them to living a relatively easy life. But we are reaching a situation where Christians are beginning to lose their jobs on occasions because of their Bible convictions. We have no, we know of men who have been forbidden to preach the gospel in the open air and have been arrested by the police. Others have been visited in their homes and accused of breaking the law and threatened with prosecution. Why? Because they have opposed certain forms of wickedness. Suppose we hired out our premises. We don't. We're not allowed to do that. But suppose we did. Suppose we wanted to make some money and we hired out our premises. And a gay and lesbian group said, We'd like to hire your premises. And we said, no you won't. We're not going to let you hire these premises. And they go along to the police. They report us. We'd be in trouble. We'd be in trouble. We could stand to lose our premises. and be fined very heavily. The day may come when those of you who are parents will be threatened with being criminalised. Why? Because you believe it is right to show loving but firm corrective discipline. You spank your children. 
is not yet against the law in this country. It is in some countries. And what about our friends who last August were shot down in cold blood in Pakistan? Arif and Kathy And those men who were brutally treated in Turkey last year for their faith. Martyrs for their faith. Where was justice? Christians will inevitably suffer to some extent or other injustice in this world. Naboth did. Christ did. And Christ is our companion in suffering. He will tell us again and again as he told his disciples, as it was with me, so it will be with you. I am your master, you are my servants. They'll treat you in the same way that they treated me. There is a price to be paid for being righteous. There is a price to be paid for opposing wickedness, especially when it comes from high places, as it did in Naboth's case. Are you willing to count the cost? How much do you value your own life, your own possessions, your own home? What if those things were taken from you? That's what happens to Hebrews. Look what happened to Naboth. And it wasn't just Naboth. You read on in two kings and it was his entire household. It was all his sons. They wiped out. Jezebel wiped out all his household. Now you say, well if God is just, if God is so concerned when you're facing wickedness, why did he not prevent Naboth's death? I can't answer that question. Naboth died. And he died at the hands of wicked men. And a wicked woman. The ways of God are sometimes very mysterious. All I can say is that God will avenge. And he did avenge the blood of Naboth. Ahab and Jezebel were called to account. And our comfort is this. Our only comfort is to take refuge in God. Because one day, sooner rather than later, God will avenge his elect. God will bring judgment upon the wicked. Sin has a limited lifespan. God is the eternal God and he is just and he is righteous and there is a day coming when he will call men and women to account for all that they have done. He will punish them for their sin and he will vindicate his own people. When is that day when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to judge this world? He will come in judgment, but to come in judgment upon wickedness to bring salvation for his people. Paul can write to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians and say, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. I will deal with it. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And I will give you rest 
from those who troubled you. I will deliver you. The Apostle Paul at the end of his life says, I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. And what I committed unto him against that day. He knows. He knows that God will vindicate him. He knows that he will have a crown of righteousness. Even though he may lose his head. And others may take his life. The crown of righteousness is him. And God will judge the wicked on that day. And we have to take refuge in God. And when we take refuge in God, it is not only for that day, it is for this day also. Because to know that God is in charge, that God is in control, that God has his hand on all these events, injects into us a calmness and a trust and a dependence and a prayerfulness so that we can go about our duty day by day. We are called to faith. We are called to hold fast. We're not called to panic. We're not called to run. Remember what it said in Psalm 11? The foundation is shaken. But what do the righteous do? They trust in God. They continue to trust in God. Now, even if our life is taken or all our goods and possessions are taken, we trust in God now and we trust in Him one day he will avenge his elect. In the meantime, we seek to live a righteous life. We seek to show the mercy and the kindness of God. The mercy that was offered to Ahab. We preach forgiveness of sins. We preach forgiveness of sins because marvel of marvels, we've been forgiven through Jesus Christ. That's the only reason we're here. That's the only reason we believe. It's God's grace, God's kindness towards us in Christ. In the midst of a wicked world, while we live, God would have us show compassion and mercy and His kindness. Though we deserve and the world deserves nothing but judgment. That's our task. Come what may. Come wind, come weather. Come persecution, come what may. Let us trust in God. Let us make our refuge in Him. Amen. O Lord, our God, we return our praise and thanks to you that one day Jesus Christ will come in glory and will right all the wrongs in this world and bring his judgment to bear upon the unrighteous and the ungodly and will vindicate his elect who cry to him day and night. Lord, we pray that we may know what it is not to be afraid but to make you our refuge, to hide ourselves in you and to wait upon you whatever comes in this world. Lord, you are righteous and you have not judged us for our sins. You have pardoned us freely and fully through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us then to show that same mercy and love to sinners far and near. Hear us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.